0: If you will, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast saying, "'Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it?' And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation." and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Heavenly Father, would you give us this wisdom that your word tells us that we need, that we might understand your word. More importantly, would you not just give us understanding, but would you give us strength and faith to know you more, to trust you more, to follow you and endure to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, just another boring passage in the book of Revelation. All right. You just read the footnotes in your Bible. We'll just go on to chapter 14. Well, no, chapter 13 is another one that is exciting. I told you it was going to get better and better, and it does. But it also gets more challenging. This is, this is hard stuff to understand. These two beasts, as you might imagine, there are many different views as to what these beasts or who these beasts represent. And so, in an effort to help us get our heads around this at the very beginning, I just want to give a kind of a cursory overview of the four main views about these two beasts. Now, when I speak of the four main views, just as a reminder, we're speaking of the futurist view, the uh, uh, preterist view, the historicist view, and the spiritual or idealist view. Those are the four. And these are views that uh, are represented among people who take Scripture seriously, who believe in God's Word, believe it's the Word of God, and, and uh, are committed to its inerrancy and its sufficiency in all of life. So these are differences in what these beasts represent that are among believers, and so we just need to keep that in mind. The first beast is understood to represent the Roman Empire by most historicists and preterists. I'm going to use the word most because this is a cursory overview. We don't have time to get into the weeds here. There are there are there's a lot of fluidity among the people that have views. I mean, even in my own view, there's some things that don't line up with everybody else's view who takes, you know, in the same camp. So that's why I say most. In general, most historicists and preterists understand this first beast as the Roman Empire. Most futurists understand the beast as a kind of a revived Roman Empire, not the ancient Roman Empire, but that in the end time there will be some kind of power or force or empire that uh, is revived that mimics the Roman Empire. That's the futurist view. All three of these views have an understanding that it is governmental and linked to Rome. You see that consistency through those three. The spiritual view also sees the beast as representing governmental power, but rather than limited it to a specific period of time or a specific governmental power, it sees the beast as representing all governmental power that is opposed to Christ. So this would be evil regimes throughout history. And we could you know, make lists of what those evil regimes have been. That is the spiritual view. So there's agreement then among all four views that it is this kind of governmental power or authority that the beast then represents. The, one of the main differences is that the first three that I mentioned see it only as pertaining to a specific period of history and most of those to a brief period of history where the spiritual view understands it to apply to the entire church age. The church age, simply the time that we're in, the age of the church, the time we, we would say from the ascension of Christ to his return or it would be more, maybe more correct to say from Pentecost until Christ's return but there's just a few days in between there. So uh, it's this age in which we live that the beast is representative of all evil powers that are in authority. And, of course, um, this latter view lends itself more to making the book of Revelation applicable to the church throughout the age, that no matter what year you lived, if you lived in 500 A.D., you could understand the book of Revelation. If you lived in 1000 A.D. or if you were around to the Reformation in 1500 A.D. or you live today, the book of Revelation then makes sense because the beast is present and it worked in all ages. The same is true with the second beast, which rather than representing governmental power, represents religious power or religious regimes. Most historicists see this as the Roman Catholic Church Preterists understand it as the emperor cultic practice that was being carried out. Uh, of course, you remember the preterist view is, is very, very condensed. And so this was happening during John's writing, this cultic emperor worship, and that's how they would understand it. Futurists, rather than seeing this as a second beast, as a, a, a power, it sees it more as a person, an individual that will come who will rule religiously over the earth in the last days. And the spiritual view, again, like the first one, it sees it representing uh, religious regimes throughout the church age, anything that opposes the work of Christ or sets itself up in opposition to it. And I would say that with the spiritual view on this, uh, the word religious might be a little too narrow uh, for our own understanding of its use today. I think worldview might be a better term for us because worldview would certainly include a religious view, but it would also capture things like secular humanism, which I think would fall into this category. I personally believe secular humanism is its own religion. It has its own faith tenets uh, that are demanded of us to call and to believe, to follow, to obey. And so secular humanism, I think, is represented by... This second beast. What's important for us to do as we continue to wrestle through these things is not to try to understand Revelation with our newspapers or our news feeds, but rather according to Scripture. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I'm not saying that news doesn't matter. It does. I'm going to talk more about this a little bit later. Uh, we, we need to be aware of what is happening. We're not to bury our heads in the sand. But we don't need to be consumed by what is happening. I feel like that's more my tendency as of late. It's just so overwhelming. Not only is the news bad, but it's really, really confusing. You hear one thing, and then you hear another source say the complete opposite. And you're left questioning what is right, what's true. And so, at least my tendency is, I want to bury my head in the sand. I don't want to be more confused. I don't even want to know that's going on. And we can't swing the pendulum to that side. I don't think any of us would object to the idea that there are sinister forces behind many of the world's powers, behind government entities. We have no problem saying certain regimes in history were evil, right? We see that. We understand it. And in history, it makes sense. It's a little harder when things are happening in our own day to be so discerning. The same is true, though, not just of governments, but of corporations now. That term isn't used, but it's true. It's happening. Corporations today, uh, and, and for a long time, it's not been anything just recent. I think we just see it more. They possess powers that were not known when John wrote this, but I think this still speaks to it. And we even see it in religion. I would say we even see it in Christianity. Not just in history, even in our own day. We see it in history. Certainly, we see it when we look at government governmental entities that are trying to take over land or take over power, or even terrorists. We think of Al Qaeda and its effort to establish some kind of Islamic caliphate by what through terrorism, and we have no problem looking at those actions and calling them evil. This is part of what's being expressed in Nigeria and what we're praying for. It's not very organized, but it's some of the outworkings of that same worldview or mindset. But it's not just in these governmental entities. It's also, like I said, in corporations. We see this with big tech today. not going to pick on that, but we all use it, Uh, I would say. Pretty much all of us make use of these services that we think are free, but there's no such thing as a free lunch. And these big tech corporations have turned us into commodities through which they create certain things that they feed us without our knowing. Through algorithms, whether it be from search engines or from social media feeds, they are, they are giving you a, a prescribed diet according to their own preferences and wishes. And it's all designed from a human standpoint around money. Right? They're selling advertisements. They're trying to make more money and more money and more money and more money. But there is something sinister behind these things. The prince of the power of the air is at work. It doesn't mean we don't use technology any more than it doesn't mean that we don't submit to the government uh, Romans 13 speaks of that. There are times that we don't submit to the government. If the government calls us to sin, obviously we would not submit to that. But it doesn't mean that we don't go out and obey the speed limit and you know, we don't steal things from our neighbors and that kind of stuff. We still use technology, but we need to show wisdom. We need to show discernment. The two beasts are described very differently. The first one is horrendous. He sounds a lot like the dragon, Sounds really scary. The second one is more tame, described as having two horns like a lamb. William Hendrickson describes the first as Satan's head, or I'm sorry, hand, and the second as his head or mind. And this would be consistent with the idea of governmental power being the hand and religious or worldview being the mind. Hendrickson writes The first represents the persecuting power of Satan operating in and through the nations of this world and their governments. The second symbolizes the false religions and philosophies of this world. Both these beasts oppose the church throughout this time, yet the apostle describes them in terms that indicate the form which they assumed during the closing decade of the first century A.D. And that's consistent with prophetic literature uh, throughout Scripture. We see that prophets would speak in the context of the day and the time, but we would often find, and we see this, you know, it's clear in Prophecy is always clear in hindsight, right? In retrospect, we see how it's fulfilled. That there were prophecies that were spoken that were directed in a context of the local time in which the prophet lived, but we realized later had this much broader or much grander fulfillment. And much of the prophecies being fulfilled in Christ, that, that would be especially true. What John is communicating here, and it's important for us to understand, is the work of these two beasts may look different in different times, but will always be evidenced by their fruit. That's what we're looking for. Satan is the father of lies. And so lying forces are an evidence of his work. Have you ever been friends with a liar? Have you ever worked for a liar? Have you ever had someone in your life who is a liar? It's just, this, just, that's just what they do. <laughs> uh, how destructive lying is. Satan is the author of confusion. Uh, In this text, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. Confusion is a fruit of deceit. And so where we see the work of confusion, we see the hand and mind of Satan. Satan is the accuser, as we saw in last week's text. So slander, misrepresentation, canceling or cancel culture. Are all evidences of his schemes. This doesn't mean that if someone is caught in a lie, they belong to Satan, because every one of us in this room have lied. (laughs) We don't belong to Satan. This doesn't mean that Christians can't be involved in cancel culture or doing other things that are part of this work. We can. We can be deceived. We can get caught up in these acts, but we don't belong to him. We're gonna make that discernment or that uh, distinction here in a minute we're looking then uh, at at systems and powers at work that are defined by these things. Lying, deception, um, accusation, misrepresentation, and confusion. This is easily visible in the secular world. I think we're probably all thinking of specific examples in our own day or in history that we think, yeah, that's probably, you know, that that was the work of Satan. Uh, But it also creeps into churches. It comes into ministries that are not guarded, that are not uh, taking care to resist the devil so that he may flee. And Satan accomplishes destructive acts through those who claim Christ. This is where the metaphor of the wolf in sheep's clothing comes from. And Jesus warned us us of it. Paul, uh, the other New Testament writers, told us, there will be those who come in among you who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And we see that. I feel like it's in the news every week. There's some new story unfolding of someone who has been even respected in Christian circles who has brought down uh, destruction of lives. All of Revelation, including this chapter, matters not only to us in our own day, but to all Christians throughout time and those who will come after us as long as the Lord tarries. So we need wisdom to show discernment. That's what verse 18 tells us. We need to remember during this time who is ruling over all, who will ultimately deliver us. We Uh, You know, there's, it's beautiful how even when John describes something so hard, so difficult, uh, so horrendous, that there are still these words of hope in here to remind us of who is ruling and who will deliver us. We need to persevere, continuing to trust in Christ so that we not only remain steady, but so that we are not deceived or lured off course by the deceptive work of the dragon through his two beasts. So beginning in, well, instead of beginning in verse 1, look above verse 1. Look at the end of chapter 12. There's a phrase at the end of chapter 12. Many believe it should have been here in 13, but it says, and he stood on the sand of the sea. We're talking of the dragon there. This is where he is positioned, uh, right where the sa- uh, the sea meets the shore. And he is about, he's there to call these two beasts forward, the first from the sea and the second from the land. And depending on how these two symbols are understood, They either represent the Antichrist and the false prophet or at least the spirit of them. As we continue to move through, we look at more characters in the book of revelation a lot of people distinguish every character as a separate entity but you'll see there's a lot if, if it's not the same character it's at least in the same spirit of the character and so the antichrist with its governmental power the false prophet we're going to see more of that with its religious component we can see at least that the the two are tied together in some sense that satan's schemes aren't all that uh well we've said he's not original is he Satan is a copycat. He's a counterfeit. This will become clear as we move on. The first beast has many of the same characteristics as the dragon seven heads, ten horns, and crowns. But we see added to him here these blasphemous names that are written on his head. It's designed to show us the connection with Satan, that the beast is his. Uh, He is his representative, he is the one who is at work through the kingdoms and powers of the earth. But it's also designed to take us back to the book of Daniel as much of Revelation does. If we go back to Daniel 7, we see the four beasts in Daniel 7. And what John's description does here is he takes one element from each of those four beasts and groups it together to have this one beast with all four elements So in Daniel 7, we see a beast that looked like a leopard, a beast that looked like a bear, a beast that had a mouth like a lion, a beast with seven heads. And here we see pieces of each of those here in uh, this final beast. Those four beasts, most see them as understand or representing rather, understand those to represent uh, the four great kingdoms of the earth, with the fourth being the Roman Empire. And so here John is tying those together by, I think, that he's showing that this isn't one empire, but it's a one great worldview, it's one great uh, philosophy, it's one great mindset that has been, it's the spirit of the age. It's It's been present for the past 2,000 years and it's not going anywhere. Uh, but but even if it's, there's still room to understand this as some kind of empire that will emerge uh, at the end. But he is painting this as as a sense of representing all four of these. It's this almost kind of Tower of Babel, the joining of, of, of uh, where people could bring their evil together because there was a common language, there was no sense of distinguishing. So the beast is a combination of those powers. For John's readers, they understood the persecution being uniquely Roman. Even the religious persecution that they were experiencing was intertwined with Rome's power over them at the time. And yet, for us, the beast represents, we're not afraid of the Roman Empire, are we? I mean, the Roman Empire's, you know, a bunch of dead rocks over there in in, in, uh, in the Mediterranean. But there's something still at work. I mean, we recognize that. So, I don't think the book of Revelation is just speaking to something that's that's this... Uh, at least the language, the way that it's used, I think it's speaking to something that's present and at work, even in this day that we live. If we look in Rome, we certainly see the, the, the images of this beast claiming deity. We see this, this beast claims deity by blaspheming God. We see that with the, the deific uh, qualities of the emperors and how they sought worship and how many of the people encouraged that. But we see that in our own day as well. We see it throughout history. If you look in North Korea, and I'm fascinated by what's happening in that country uh, because it, is, uh, it shows incredible power and there's a, there's a deific quality uh, of the leaders uh, there. We see this in Stalin. We see this in Hitler. We see this in Mussolini at the time of World War II. We see this in the pharaohs. They were worshipped as gods. Uh, Many of the Chinese and Japanese emperors were seen as deities. The Dalai Lama is understood to be God incarnate, as are the kings of Nepal even to this day. But lest we think that this mindset only occurs in far-off countries or in periods of time way back in history because we are so much more developed and so much more advanced and so much more immune from any kind of influence, let me read to you these words I had to look this up. I thought these could have been written yesterday. These were written over 20 years ago. Vern Poitras writes, In democratic countries, the state does not insist on literal worship, but citizens are tempted to look to the state as if it were a messiah. It is the greatest concentration of earthly power, and so it must be the remedy for all ills, economic, social, medical, moral, even spiritual. Moreover, blatant state persecution threatens to overwhelm us through fear. But in subtle ways, we're tempted to give ultimate commitments to anything that we fear fear of man, human opinion, fear of death, fear of pain, fear of poverty. So the picture of idolatry has universal application. This is speaking to us, not just to people in faraway countries or people way back in history. This is us in our own day, in our temptation, and and you can replace the democratic state uh, by uh, anything that you look to as your source of provision, as your source of care, as your source of security, as your source of deliverance. Satan is intent to work through whatever tactics work, whatever is effective. He is a deceiver, and so we should not expect to be immune from these tactics. In verse 6, we see the beast opening its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. And so we should not be surprised when the powers of this world do the same thing. No one's immune. We see in verse 7, all authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This means that it has worldwide impact. No one is left out. I think this is a compelling argument, again, that the beast represents a system throughout the church age because of the breadth of its impact this is not talking about one specific kingdom in history note in verse 5 the time frame 42 months you remember that we've seen that number before right this is when the ver- uh, the beast makes war on the saints, this is consistent with what we've seen in the images of the church. The two witnesses, the woman who is, uh, gives birth to who we know is the Messiah, who is sent into the wilderness, the same time frame is used there. So it's consistent then with the pictures that we see of the church. This is how Satan works. Spiritual warfare going on, we can't see into the spiritual realm, but we see the effects of the spiritual realm in the physical world. The Satan uses temporal powers to persecute the body of Christ. He is, as we say, hell-bent, right? That's, I mean, that's where he's going, and so he is driven by that uh, uh, condemnation that is his uh, to do as much damage as he can before he is locked there forever. The beast demonstrates this worldwide authority, but its power is within limits. Look in verse 8. That those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, are protected by exclusion. They are not included in this. So there's this worldwide picture, all nations, tribes, and tongues. Later it says everyone. But John includes this little snippet here, not those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are protected. You are safe. Again, this is consistent with what we've seen of the church. The woman was taken into the wilderness and protected and nourished. As the people of God who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we are ultimately protected. Paul Gardner writes, Whatever power and authority the beast appears to wield, whatever damage the beast seems to do as he wars against the saints, the Lamb is still there and he has won the victory. And it is impossible for those who belong to him to be removed from this book of life. Indeed, they will not worship the beast as the rest of the world does. In verse 10, then, we see a quote. It's taken from two different sections of Jeremiah, chapter 15 and chapter 43, that explains the reality of our suffering. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, along with the other Old Testament prophets, spoke to Israel. And, And in many of the cases, particularly with these two, they said, you're going into exile because of sin and unbelief. But they also spoke words of encouragement to the faithful remnant, those who were the true believers, those who were by faith the children of God. And they said, you're going to go with them. But the purpose is not punishment. The purpose is refinement. And this, again, is something we have seen uh, throughout our study of the book of Revelation, that, that although we will suffer alongside in God's judgment of sin on the earth, he uses that suffering that we experience for our refinement, for our growth in grace, and not to punish us. And so here we see in verse 10 a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In all of this gloom and doom, John reminds us that one, that we're safe, we're excluded. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can take us out of that. And then he calls us to endure and to remain faithful. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so we are not to lose heart then while we press on with our eyes fixed on the Lamb who died for us and now reigns. The second beast emerges in verse 11. It appears with two horns like a lamb. While the first beast, we said, represented the hand of Satan's work, this is Hendrickson's uh, verbiage, this beast represents the mind. We said worldview uh, of Satan's work. He spoke like a dragon Right, He's the mouthpiece of Satan. This is another one of those caricatures or counterfeits that we see in the book of Revelation. This one is like a prophet. That's why I said he's either the false prophet or in the spirit of the false prophet. He speaks as the prophets were the mouthpiece of God. This beast is the mouthpiece of Satan. And just as we'd expect, this beast deceives those who dwell on the earth. Verse 14. I want to remind you that those who dwell on the earth are those who do not believe in Christ. That phrase is used throughout the book of Revelation. So I want you to see that's where the deception is aimed. The beast appears more tame like a lamb. I think this is makes him more believable. People are more likely to fall for these tricks, including this false resurrection that's described that occurs. Uh, He's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. There's some kind of trick here with idolatry uh, that's going on. And we know that this has happened in the ancient world. There were tricks and magicians. This goes all the way back to before the pharaohs. But we saw this with Moses and Aaron, and they they did their various things. And they thought that uh, Moses and Aaron were just doing tricks like they were doing. And so God ups the ante to show that it was his power behind it. Well, there were other things that happened, including in John's day. Uh, you know, Nero, when he died, he actually took his own life. But there were those who said he was going to come back. And then there were all these sightings and these supposed recordings of Nero's return that he had come back from the dead. This is possibly what John had in mind here. But again, our tendency is to look at that and say, oh, that's something way back in history. We don't have anything like that today. But we do. We have our own version of it. I mean, secular humanism is one of those things that calls us to this kind of blind faith. We don't even realize that it's happening uh, we turn on the news and we listen to certain segments in our society tell us to believe what they say without question. Uh, I would say that science, or I, let me say so called science, not true science, but those who say things like science says or follow the science and then expect this just, you know, blind uh, uh, belief. And obedience, because science said so. Now, let me be clear: as Christians, we're not to be anti-science. I think Christians should be involved in science. We should be. Uh, we should be. We, we ourselves should be good scientists. Study the evidence. It all points to God, anyway. What I'm speaking of here is a power that is at work, and again, it is subtle, and we don't realize it that is speaking to things, whether it be evolution or other things in our culture, and our society, that expect this blind allegiance to whatever they say. So as Christians, we need to not stick our heads in the sand, but we need to be wise and show discernment and study. And we need smart Christians involved in the sciences and the technologies to be a light in the darkness. In the final three verses of the chapter, we see the description of the mark of the beast. And I know you're not interested in any of that. So we can uh, skip to the end. Uh, okay. We're, we're, we're way past time. I'll, I'm going to go very quickly and, and I'm going to be very brief uh, because one, we're way past time and I want to just be absolutely emphatic. Okay. I'm not doing this on all the stuff in Revelation. I realize there's different views on things. I'm presenting what I believe the text says. Uh, but there's, you know, I've been, I've been kind of, gra- I'm, I'm not going to be gracious on this. I'm going to be emphatic. I'm going to tell you exactly what the mark of the beast is and exactly what the number 666 is. It is described as being applied on the right hand or the forehead of all people, both great and small. Now, I mentioned before that the people who dwell on the earth, that's describing those who do not believe, and that's who this is speaking of here. This is another counterfeit. It is a counterfeit of the seal by which believers have been sealed. We read of this in Revelation 7, chapter 3. It is a seal that has been applied to all of those who are in Christ. And just as that seal was not visible neither is the mark of the beast. So here's where I want to be emphatic. As a child of God, you cannot accidentally get the mark of the beast. As a child of God, you can't get the mark of the beast. You don't have to fear someone coming up and sneaking and putting a chip in you I'm serious. There are a lot of Christians who are fearful of this. I want to be very clear about this. That cannot happen. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are protected. You are safe. It is a description, rather, of one's spiritual status. One who has submitted to the beast's system. That is, one who follows the worldview of Satan. Again, William Hendrickson writes this, The forehead symbolizes the mind, the thought life, the philosophy of a person. The right hand indicates his deed, action, trade, industry, etc. Right hand, we read that psalm this morning, and what does it speak of? The right hand of God. That's the mighty power, right? That's described as being in the right hand. So here we see that consistent uh, thing. Therefore, receiving the mark of the beast, this is Hendrickson, On the forehead or the right hand indicates that either preeminently in what he thinks, says, writes, or more emphatically in what he does, this anti-Christian spirit becomes evident. So the mark of the beast is this anti-Christ or anti-Christian worldview. It is embracing the system. It is rejecting Christ. So if you have embraced Christ by faith, you are safe. It's not going to accidentally happen to you. It's not implanted in your credit card. It's not in a tattoo that you will secretly get or knowingly get. It is not in a chip that's been implanted to you or will be implanted to you. You are safe. Now, the fallout of those who don't embrace this worldview and don't receive this mark of the beast, this spiritual mark, is that they will suffer persecution, including their livelihood, their ability to buy and sell. We've seen this already. We saw it in the seven churches, particularly in the church at Smyrna, who Jesus said to them, I know you're poor, but then in, it's parenthetical in the English, but you are rich, speaking of in Christ. And we know that what was happening in Smyrna with the, the trade guilds and so forth is that Christians, because of their faith, they were losing their opportunity for work. I shared the illustration last week of the story of friends of ours from the country in which we lived who almost lost their apartment because of their faith. This is what is being described here. So again, don't be fearful of a secret chip, but rather walk in wisdom and do not be seduced by the world's philosophies. Take a stand and yet know that as you stand, you will endure suffering. You could lose income. You could lose an apartment. You could lose your job because of your faith. Verse 18 then says that we need this wisdom to discern. Here it speaks of the number of the beast, which is also called the number of a man. This wisdom is not some kind of secret code-breaking tool that we need to figure out what the number represents. I read this week so much speculation (laughs) that if you bend and twist latin letters roman letters greek letters english letters you can make any letters of any name or person or entity including one person it was it was cute purple dinosaur or something trying to say barney was the mark of the beast or the antichrist or something anyway it's ludicrous how much effort has been put in trying to name what this number represents it's very very simple how have we seen the number seven used throughout Scripture, but specifically in the book of Revelation? Number seven represents perfection. Six falls short. And here we have three sixes. I think it's a mockery of the Trinity. Uh, the, the, the three sixes, it's three, it's 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 a repeated, uh emphatic falling short of perfection. That is the symbol of of man. I mean, talk about man was created on the sixth day. There's a number of ways we can look at the number six. But here what it represents in the spirit of the age is this uh, just absolute failing to measure up. It will not deliver. And isn't that a picture of Satan? The ultimate counterfeit, the ultimate vandal who can't deliver. And so don't fear dialing a phone number that has three consecutive sixes. Don't fear that when your odometer turns over and you see three sixes that your car is about to blow up. Many Christians have lived superstitiously with these things. But instead, seek God's wisdom so that we're able to stand against the wisdom of the age and the human systems through which the evil one is at work. Okay, let me close it with this. How do we, where, where do we land? First, we need to know that Satan is real and that he is at work. Let me repeat what I said earlier. He is the father of lies. So lying forces are a fruit of his work. He is the author of confusion because he's the deceiver of the whole world. So confusion is a fruit of his effort. Satan is the accuser. So slander, misrepresentation, canceling are all evidences of his schemes. We shouldn't stick our heads in the sand, but instead we must be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Second, we're to be filled with hope and the protection that is ours. We see this clearly, that those of us who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, those of us who are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, are safe. While our suffering in this life is almost certain, we can expect it, we're told to be ready for it, it will not end in our demise, but we will be brought safely home by the Lamb who has conquered. Peter goes on in that same passage. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That restoration, that confirmation, that strengthening, that establishment is not just a far-off hope. He does that for us here and now through this table. The supper of our Lord is a means of grace by which He communes with us to remind us of our redemption in Him. We're called to remember. But this, this meal is also a source of nourishment by which we are restored, by which we are established, by which we are strengthened. And the table is also a foretaste of the great supper of the Lamb when we will be with our Savior forever, when there will be no more suffering or pain or pain or longing, or grief. So come, let us prepare to be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established this very day as we partake of this good meal which is served to us by our Lord, Redeemer, and Friend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you do that? Would you restore? Would you establish? Would you confirm? Would you strengthen us? By your Spirit. A lot swirling around in our heads. There's a lot of confusing things happening in our world. It can be overwhelming. So we long for your wisdom. You've promised that if we ask for wisdom, that you give generously without finding fault. So we ask, Lord, give us your wisdom. That we may discern what is true and what is good. But Lord, help us to understand that wisdom isn't just knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to live according to what is true and good in a way that pleases you. So would you help us to that end? Lord, use this meal now to do that, to accomplish that, to establish us, to strengthen us, to build us up. We look to you in faith to do this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.